What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about the amazing Wade Institute of Entrepreneurship. I recently co-organized an event with them in Sydney, and I know many of you enjoyed the evening. The Wade Institute is a leading center for entrepreneurial training based at Ormond College in the University of Melbourne, and they deliver educational programs to accelerate learning, creation, and connection, and their facilitators are many of the previous guests on this show. One of the programs that I think will interest many of you is the VC Catalyst, an immersive executive education program for new and active investors to gain the best practice tools and skills to make successful early-stage venture capital-style investments into high-growth startups. All you have to do is head to wadeinstitute.org.au. Applications are currently open for the next cohort of the program starting in March 2024 and is delivered by leading investors and industry experts, names I know many of you would recognize. Now, on to today's episode with Sarah Hamilton. Today, in this episode 147, I'm speaking with Sarah Hamilton, co-founder of Bella Box, Asia Pacific's market-leading beauty box that she co-founded with her twin sister and raised investment from leading investors, including SquarePeg. Sarah is now an investor herself and advisor to many of the leading companies and CEOs in the consumer and beauty industry, and a graduate of the Wade Institute VC Catalyst Program. Learn about Sarah Sunrise in Geelong, just outside Melbourne, Australia, being one of four kids, and the influences of her dad, who ran a carpet and furniture store, and mum, who worked in the business and loved the commerce and numbers. Questions I love exploring with Sarah include the role of growing up in an entrepreneurial household and how that led her to a start in a career in finance roles in the magazine advertising industry in Australia and then London and New York, the business model of that industry and key differences between the UK and US markets, how and why she decided to come back to Melbourne and start Bellabox with her twin sister and how they outlived 11 competitors in the beauty subscription category, the early days of social media and low customer acquisition costs, very useful, and learnings from raising venture capital investment. We cover her journey to becoming an angel investor and the role the VC Catalyst program played in providing practical learnings and the ins and outs of investing. Plus, I was fascinated by Sarah's reflections on what she thinks differentiates venture capital and private equity, her transition from founder to an advisor, and measuring times per month rather than times per week. Listen in for the full context on this one. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Sarah Hamilton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. 
I'm excited to do this. This is the first of our episode partnerships with Wait and Shoot. So excited to unpack your journey with our listeners. Why don't we start with your fun facts? Where were you born and where do you live now? Uh, I was born in Geelong in Victoria and I live in Elston, we call Melbourne now. Great. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? I love this. My first job was actually at McDonald's and I feel like I was one of, and I used to cook at McDonald's, so really random. And I think I was probably one of the only, I don't think a chef, a cook that didn't eat the food. But I really love the business concept of McDonald's, which is why I went for the job. Mm. And then how would you describe your role now or your various roles now? (laughs) Now, I feel like I'm still a, a business person. I really love the business of beauty and I've left some companies that I've founded in order to invest in in new beauty brands and also existing beauty brands. So, yeah, a varied, varied sort of group at the moment, but I love it. And a little mm. bit on the side, a bit of health tech, a bit of pet as well, a bit randomly. So I'm, I'm learning about those industries very slowly. Totally, and I'm sure we'll chat about it as we talk yeah. more on this episode. <laughs> and as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? I feel like there's probably a lot. I think this is a great question, but I have lots of great friends who are doing really cool things. I suppose Ray Maxwell's probably one, a good friend of mine. She's probably got three businesses running at any one time. And yes, she needs more recognition. So I'll call her out. Nice. I like it. Let's wind back the clock and go back to your sunrise, as I call it, your childhood. You mentioned growing up in Geelong. What are your memories of the environment? I feel like it was a really, I don't want to say simple, but it was an easy life. So we lived near school. I could walk to school from a pretty young age. Uh, we played a lot of sport. We barracked for the cats. You know, I feel like we went to Queensland. We drove to Queensland on holidays. Like it was really, yeah, a nice, simple, fun life. Grew up with two parents that always had their own businesses. So I was quite used to that aspect of life. And what, what did your parents do for work, if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, of course. So my dad had a carpet store. Like, isn't it funny? You sort of right. think about, yeah, yeah, with two of his friends and they moved into carpet and furniture and expanded that uh, into Melbourne as well and also into Ballarat. So really, like, fun group of guys that, you know, worked out how to sell furniture and carpet and, and make money. But it was obviously a, a big ticket item at that point. But I always remember that he would always say, you've got to have sales and it's always your birthday sale and it doesn't really matter when your birthday is, just that you're on sale. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And mum? So mum worked in the business with dad. I feel like so I'm one of four kids, so she was very hands-on with us but always and, and now still in the property business, very hands-on right. with all the numbers. Yeah, she actually said recently she should have studied commerce. She, she loves that. So she was born at a point where you become a teacher or a nurse, um, but she would have loved to do commerce. It's really smart. Well, I'm assuming the business would be a commerce degree in practice, right? The yeah, exactly. Sitting in a classroom. So. Absolutely. And, and how was that like for you? Were you involved in the business or did you hear about it on the dinner table? Yeah, we would talk about it. And I think dad was always big on Collins Street workers being the factory workers of today. So sorry for my friends that you were working right. for a wage. He was always big on making your own, I suppose, luck. So we did talk about it. And, you know, when it came down to end of financial year, he'd start up all night getting all the numbers done. So we were just, it was always around us. And then on the school holidays, we would have to work in the business, putting, you know, flyers into pamphlets with the rest of the the owner's kids as well, which is good fun. And did that shape your personality in high school? Were you willing to push the envelope? Yeah. So actually a commerce project that my sister and I did 
turned into a business idea for dad. So when we were in year 10, we did like a home builders magazine. So this is when he was getting into property and it was about listing all the trades almost like it's almost like a you know kind of a, a pamphlet with lots of great trades in there and for us it was like okay so we worked out really early on how you would need to make money quickly um, even you know we used to sell Christmas reeds at, at Christmas time as well to all of our neighbors all of our very kind neighbors because they were probably pretty ugly but <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could and, and, actually <laughs> yeah totally and what was, because it's interesting, you had those influences where, so uh, my dad was also an entrepreneur growing up, but I never actually appreciated it. Like to me, it was yeah. like that's dad. Yeah. He ran his business through Southeast Asia and I never, that was just life. I didn't know any different. Did you did you get a sense of that entrepreneurialism to your point was different to like people that worked in Collins Street or your friends at school? I think so. And I mean, Geelong's still pretty, like I think we were at yeah. an age where a lot of the mums didn't work. So the dad sort of went to work and, and how that was defined was obviously different for everyone. But definitely the sense that business and accounting was important was instilled in us. We were always sort of challenged on numbers when we discussed them. So I think we knew the difference. And, and obviously, as we grew up, that difference widened. But when we were younger, it was still quite subtle. Yeah, well, actually, now that after I ask you the question, I didn't see that growing up, so it wasn't like I think it's easy to ask that. <laughs> we mixed podcast. in different circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when you think of, I feel like 18 is an age where you've got some understanding of yourself and the world. What was what was fulfillment at, at that age? It's funny because I, so I started working pretty early and I kind of like, like I was a, a bit of a tomboy growing up and then I found clothes. So I worked to buy my own clothes. So I feel like I was really, I did you know, I would do two jobs. That's just what I enjoyed. And so I thought at uni that I would want to do law. And so I got into commerce law at Monash. And then I probably got through a year of law and failed quite a few subjects and then decided that commerce was more my thing. So yeah, so fulfillment was, I mean, at that stage, obviously lots of really fun things, but I do think I sort of really, the commerce side resonated. So when I worked at a cafe, I would think about it. Like I even at the bakery I worked at, I would never add up using the cash register I add it up in my head <laughs> just all oh, right wow that's great that's great I, I actually my, my first job was at a restaurant in a in a busy in a busy suburb in Melbourne actually and yeah. I found I couldn't do the the multitasking okay. in a restaurant where yeah. customers always like come take our order and it's like no I've got to actually do the till and I've got to yeah. do the cash register and that it up, was, so. yeah it was very yeah. random but I do distinctly remember always wanting to keep my mind occupied and I enjoyed that part <laughs> nice well that explains why you went into finance right because if I understand yeah. correctly you started your career in in yeah, actual so, like, deep finance roles so I more did accounting for really fun companies so my first role was with actually my first role was with I've just found it in mental blank, but St. Ali, Salvatore Malatesta. So when he was starting up all these plush fish, so he had a number of restaurants before he went into coffee and I had my own little office in the Rialto, which is unbelievable. He was still practising as a lawyer and he just gave me so much leeway. So he'd be like, okay, now can you negotiate a rental contract for X? And I'd never done that. So I think he saw that I could probably do a bit more than what I said. And so I think from that it really shaped me that I liked doing accounting roles or sort of general management roles in, in companies where I understood what they were doing. So whether that restaurants or magazines, et cetera, that's what I really enjoyed. So I got to be like not the geeky person but the numbers person in a really fun, creative environment. 
And were you also working overseas, from, if my research is correct? Yeah, so I moved yeah. over to London and I worked for a magazine company called Dazed and Confused or the Dazed Group, and that was great. I, one of my really great friends begged me to take the job when I got offered it because it meant that we got to go to lots of fun parties. But, yeah, I, and I was able to make sense of the magazine world and it's a world that I still really love. And then I moved after that and went to New York and I worked for Spin Magazine. I was their general manager over over there, which is why I got to go to South by all the time. Yeah, right. So so you, you, were, you were doing finance in the magazine advertising yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what does that actually look like? Like what is finance, like what is what does a business model in those industries look like? So the business model, so it's really interesting. In the UK it's more, so, you know, sales driven in terms of individual sales and subscriptions and then also advertising driven. In the US it's very much driven, like you need the eyeballs in order to get the advertising. So a lot of companies are paying for people to almost subscribe to their magazines, which I couldn't get over. So it was almost like in the UK you chose to subscribe. In the US it was very much you need to get to a certain circulation in order to command advertising rates. So you needed to make sure that you had a consistent base of subscribers. Which didn't right. make sense. It sort of made me realise that you can't have a business model that relies on a broken part to fund, for me, a, the broken part to fund the, the other part because it's almost like everything needs to exist to be, I think, profitable. Obviously, I'm not in SaaS, <laughs> so in mm. the businesses I work, I really I, I don't like the idea that there needs to be a loss-leading part of the business. And was there a push-pull within you because you have this entrepreneurial upbringing but then you're working in finance which is very structured and process driven and regulation. I think if I was working in finance in an accounting firm I would have really struggled with it because it was really I feel like I came into roles and I was able to make them my own and even the first day I started with spin in New York the guy that I reported into was in San Francisco and he called me and he said it sounds like you're a self-starter you'll need to be you're walking in today no one's going to give you any sort of tour of the office your office is sitting there and you need to sort out what's going on with our finance function so that it's almost it allowed me to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and that's why I think I kept going for those types of roles as opposed to I, I think I met with KPMG and they were like in two years with this and then this and this. And I was just like, I walked out and I'm like, wow, that, that's not me. So, yeah, finance structure in a, ma- in a magazine company, uh, unless you're Hearst perhaps, is, isn't that great. <laughs> and would you say looking back on that, because I think you were in the industry for about six, seven, eight years, yeah. right? Would you say looking back that was a good foundation for your career? Like, Yeah, because I think, again, it was a tangible offering. So it was like, how do you make money out of this? And it was really, I think, yeah, the strong accounting base and understanding the unit economics is something that I really enjoy. So it allowed me to be like, oh, wait a minute, if we just got, you know, 50,000 more subscribers and we were actually making 10% watch, you know, what what the business would change, you know, how it would change. So it was was a really good foundation. And I think it just, yeah, again, really, I love the business of beauty and that's what I keep coming back to. So it's, but for me, the foundations have to be right. And I got a crash course in that with the magazine industry because it was when it was at a time where magazines were really struggling as well in the US. So trying to change magazines to a more, you know, media, online media driven world was hard was hard when they were so used to people wanting to read print and I'm, I'm always curious about also the personal development side of this is how was that for you in the in the magazine advertising industry did you have mentors early on that took you under their wing and and supported you or were you always yeah. entrepreneurial and you just got out there and did your thing I was always quite autonomous in my roles but had great people that I could talk to. And um, even, you know, in New York, yeah, I reported into people sitting in 
San Francisco in another office. So it was fairly light touch. In, you know, at Days Confused, I reported to Susan Waddle, who's amazing, and she was the publisher, like really impressive. And, and she let me go. I'd be like, hey, what about this? And she's like, yep, yeah, you'll do that. So I think in both roles I had a huge amount of autonomy but still, you know, someone to guide me when I needed help. Hmm. And, and was there a cultural aspect as well? Because we've had guests on the show recently who've either worked in different parts of the world or had yep. have have had teams in different parts of the world and they've said it's been a really good learning, that that matrix of competence but then cultural variety. Yeah, I loved it. So when I lived in London, it was very much, you know, like English love Australians and yeah. amazingly our work ethic is, you know, considered quite highly. So I really, I loved that aspect that you got to know something new. I loved the people. I loved being somewhere different and I loved learning about a new business. So I think that part, and it was really fun. It was like Days and Confused is a really cool, cool magazine. So you'd go to parties and Kate Moss was there and all this sort of stuff. So it was quite surreal, but then you had to go back and work out how to to make money from it. And I distinctly remember one night because I would come to work and I was, 25 so came to work a little bit tired sometimes and my boss Suzanne you know one night we were at a party and she said to me you you don't need to come to work tomorrow and I'm like what do you mean I don't need to come to work she said you work all the time (laughs) just have a day off and I was like wow that is the best thing a boss could ever do for someone who's 25 so yeah and then New York was I always say like London was like a pub and New York was like a wine bar so Mm. New York was like super high pace, really determined, Everything gets, everyone gets stuff done quickly and I absolutely thrived in that environment. So when I then, so it's funny, in the UK they think you're Australian and work hard and then you get to the US and you're like, wow, we do not work hard, like this is completely different. So when I moved back to Australia, I struggled with that transition because I found everyone to be quite a little bit slower. took me probably six months of being jaded before I got used to being back. <laughs> That's so interesting. I, 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 I'm wondering if there's also a side of, network building where I've had friends and and mentors who've gone overseas and they come back and they find it tricky to Mm. reconnect to Australia because they've either disconnected from their network or their US network is not as appreciated. Was there an element of that when you came back? Yeah, and I'm certainly, I came back at an age where friends were starting to have kids as well. So I feel like I went through that phase and I've got really great friends and I've got really great girl and guy friends, but I came through that stage where I'd known all my friends to be really independent and then I came back and then we were moving into that phase where perhaps, you know, girls would stop working, look after kids, which is 100% amazing, but that part was hard for me. I'm like, well, what are you doing now? And they're like, oh, you know, oh, my gosh. So I found that part, honestly, really hard to work out why we then all of a sudden were on an equal footing and it felt like that had changed. Mm. Um, yeah, no, kudos, kudos to you for doing those changes. I think they yeah. sound really nice in hindsight, but I'm sure yeah. in the moment there would have been a lot of uncertainty moving yeah. in countries. So you came back to Australia and then then what did you do? How did you I find came, your next role? Yeah, came back to start Bella Box. So my sister was living in Singapore and she came over to New York and said, let's start Bella Box, which is based on a company called Birchbox in the US, which was started by two Harvard girls. We were not two Harvard girls, but who liked beauty but didn't know anything about beauty and that was essentially Emily and I but they made a business and it was when subscription commerce was really new they made a business about making sure that you could trial products that were actually suited to you and then go on to buy a more considered purchase than just spending $500 at Bloomingdale's on things that you don't like so yeah came back to start that so sort of I feel like I landed in September and we launched in October but we'd been planning that in 2011 we've been planning and- for that launch 
That's so so interesting because I, I spend a lot of my time with founders and I'm always curious about the first 12 months because I feel that lays the foundations and yeah. that's where you get to know each other as co-founders and you might yeah. have hired your first team member, maybe yes. there's a bit of fundraising. What was that when you look back in hindsight? Because I think it was 2011, is that right? 20, yeah, late 2011 into 2012. Like it was, it was great. It was a really fast-paced environment. There are a lot of competitors. So I think Bellabox outlived about 11 competitors in the beauty subscription space. And I think for us, it was just like really how do we make sure that we're going to be the best? So we knew the numbers, of course, because <laughs> I love that. And then it was just how do we grow but not be too fussed by the competitors? And it was really, you know, it was getting brands on board. They didn't really understand it. Like why are we going to send samples out to people when we can give them away in goodie bags? So I feel like it was just navigating that environment and getting better at understanding what drove the brands because ultimately you need the product to then sell to the customer what drove the brands and then what the customers wanted to see. So it was very, it was multi-pronged and we had to get every part right. Because it was also quite early in the social media age, right? Like Facebook yes. stuff was around, but they were a few years in. So did that work, did that help or hinder your awareness? It absolutely helped. So it was at a point where it was just Facebook. We early on hired an unbelievable guy, Albert Chong, who then got headhunted by Ilya Beauty in the US after he came to us from with us to Supernova, but he, Canadian guy, and it was like watching, you know, gambling, like, or, or probably Bloomberg, you know, two screens, and, and it was when Coles wasn't on there, so no big companies were really advertising or that hadn't worked it out, or companies were spending a heap of money and getting no return, and then from the day that we started on social media, it was all about the ROI. So we were like, we don't want a customer unless it's profitable on the first sale, and I think just that mentality, that was different to what a lot of people were doing and then a lot of brands caught up after that. So, yeah, it was a great time, great time to be on social media. And I'm assuming the the CAC, CAC would have been quite, oh my quite low as well because now I think <laughs> the spend in, on some of these social media platforms for startups is, is on the expensive side, right? Exactly, yeah. This is when CAC was like $10 all in and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, what a joy. And I feel like that lasted until, I even think with Sands Guy and Coco Nay, that lasted until 2018. 2019 so it was still quite mm. easier relatively easier than what it is now mm. and, and CAC for anyone wondering is customer acquisition oh, yeah. cost which is critical for a, any business particularly a direct-to-consumer business yeah. I think and so talk about the fundraising side of this because I think this is a controversial question in direct-to-consumer yeah. and beauty because there's so many different sorts of fundraising I often hear founders talk about crowdfunding as their first yeah. protocol because they feel venture capital doesn't understand their business model or and then as they grow they might go to private equity and yeah. like how, talk about how you decided one whether you should get fundraising and two who that right partner is it was funny because we so we were self-funded and it was only that we met with a brand and as I was myself who met with a brand I was in Sydney and the owner of that brand said to me, I don't want to just put products in the in ballot box, it was called, uh, you know, I want to invest in your company. And I had that real moment of like, play it cool, <laughs> don't freak out. Just be like, I was like, yeah, 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 because that's what everyone's saying to us. And then I rang my sister and her husband and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> these people want to invest. And we just had no idea where to start. We were lucky in that we were sort of guided by them on on how we should approach it. And so for the first round, it was just that person, Lance Kalish, that we'd met with. And then he brought on a group of really impressive individuals, including SquarePeg, who invested in Bellabox, and also um, Monash Capital, our next round for Bellabox, which was 
two two children later, no, one child later. So I basically fundraise with my first child and then my second child in different points of my pregnancy. So the second round, we went harder and we went out to more people and there was a lot more structure to how we did the deal, whereas the first deal was just like this, you know, here's a million dollars with all the caveats. <laughs> and, you know, let's try and accelerate this because they knew that there were so many competitors in the space. So we did what we set out to do and then we raised again a year and a half later. Mm. Oh, that's that's great. Square peg, square peg. A number of the folks have been on the on the show actually. Yeah. Paul Paul's been on, yeah. and, and James Tynan, and a and a few others. And that's great because they're a traditional venture capital firm. So it sounds like you did build a business model that was suited to VC. They got it. and I. So I feel like so my sister was still in Singapore, and I did a lot of the investor meetings. And I think the most important thing um, that I got out of it is reading the room and understanding what they care about. Mm. So don't you know, not harping on things that are really, that they don't, they don't care about. And I think, as you said, that business model side is the most important. The business model has to be watertight. They need to believe in it, that they can make money. And I think our first meeting with them was in our really crappy office in Cremorne in Richmond. And I remember I bought my English bulldog because I was so nervous <laughs> and, and some chocolate chip cookies because I was like, I don't even know how to make everyone feel relaxed. But I think it probably would have been the cheapest table that they'd all sat around. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. I, I want to. You touched on a few personal points that I want to get to in a second. But now, when you look back on that fundraising journey, what were the key key takeaways? Because I know you mentor a lot of founders now, and we'll we'll get to your angel investing story in a, in a yeah. moment. But yeah, when you look back on that Bellabox fundraising period, what were the key key learnings, or, or, or even painful learnings that you wish you yeah. didn't do? I wish. It was great. So we were luckily that we had good guidance. I think we probably signed some things that I regret. I think what you need to be transparent about the deal that you're getting into and also probably what the exit means. Like we didn't understand that. So if we exit, what happens? Who gets what? And in the end, Emily and I didn't do as well as our investors. And that, you know, that happens. It was a risky young business. So I understand that. So I think it was just and it was at a time in 2012 when not a lot of people would talk about it and I didn't have a group of friends. I had one friend, James Hawkins, that I could talk to about it and he even gave me advice and I was like, I don't know, like I feel like we just need to sign. And so I feel like we just didn't have the confidence to ask all the questions and now when I talk to people I'm like, make sure you really understand it and really understand along the journey what that means. So what happens if X happens, you know, and it's not just doomsday, it's really key moments in your journey with investment to understand who gets what and then make sure the deal's structured in a way that you get the most. <laughs> totally, totally. I, I always say venture capital is so, or any private equity asset is so opaque where yeah. new founders coming in. Yeah. And I think you came in at a time where VC in Australia was still a nascent industry. Yeah. I think now there's a lot more founders. Like the advice I always give to founders is talk to someone 12 months ahead of you. Yes, that's They're probably best place yeah. to give you direct actionable advice rather than coming mm. to investors, which to your point, they've got their own biases. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's so true. And we're at a point too where there weren't, I feel like we maybe met two females on the journey, like, you know, through both rounds. So it was, and, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I've always worked with lots of men. I didn't really think about that too much, but it, it is very different now. So I do think there was probably that subconscious bias in our mind. It was like, man, we have to take this deal. And I don't, they didn't do the terrible thing by us, but there's always better deals, isn't there? And I think the more that you understand and the more you command, you know, not just respect, but making sure you understand what you're going to get at each turn, it's really important and helpful. So, yeah, mm. to your point, you're 12 months, get, meeting someone 12 months down the road is 
an excellent idea. <laughs> mm, mm, <laughs> totally. You, you mentioned your co-founder, Emily, but you didn't actually tell us that she's your twin sister as well. Is that yeah. is that right? Yeah, what was that like working with your twin sister? I feel like at times it's probably good that we're in different countries. We're <laughs> okay. quite different personalities. So yeah, I think if we were in the same office, it would have been hard. And we have different skill sets as well. So I think we, we played into that. We probably spent a lot of time together and maybe needed a few breaks, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't strange. It was something, a personality that I've been used to for a long time. And you, and the, I think the other part Sarah mentioned is you had two kids during mm. the journey with yep. Bellabox. So yeah. firstly, kudos to you. I, I don't know if I meant to say that, but uh, <laughs> no, I think some, some, something there that's aspiring, inspirational <laughs> is what, how do you look back on that time now? Like what was the, what's the right question? It's sort of almost like, well, how did you divide your energy between building the startup yeah. in life and the startup at work it's funny because so with your first child I just didn't even know like I feel like I was one of those women that at 38 34 weeks I first opened a pregnancy book like I would just go and see my obstetrician I wouldn't ask any questions I'm like I kind of don't want to know like I obviously want that outcome but I'm not I'm like big on if you're the authority in something then you do that that's fine and I'll do what I'm doing so I feel like it was just a whirlwind but still obviously really exciting and we just juggled both like you know I think like my partner Jamie was really good and we were just able to to manage it all and I think we just you know I think it's excellent now that a lot of people work from home we didn't have that you know so we had nanny and nanny from day dot because you had to go into the office and you had to work from there and now it's you know it I think I'm happy for people that are able to take a bit more time and work from home just um, so you can spend a bit more time with the kids. But, yeah, I balance both. Um, this My second child, Otis, my first child, Ruby, second child, Otis, I signed the deal when I was in hospital after I'd had him a day later. <laughs> wow. So that was probably something that's a bit silly. It's a good story now and it was fine at the time, but it was it was very stressful. I would say it was very stressful, but but he's okay for all of it. And then I had a third child, but by then I'd moved on to, to supernova. Mm, wow. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't quite know what to respond to that, but except say well, good on you. it sounds like that's really yeah, I think it's a it's a tricky topic as a male to comment on because oh, I don't can't mind. relate I don't to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I hope that that worked out well, and the and the kids. Yeah. Hopefully, they've got their entrepreneurial spirit as well from you. Do you have kids? That. I don't have kids yet, but I have a lot of appreciation for people that have kids because I, I can barely manage my own life, and and my partner, we can barely manage our lives. I, I don't know how parents do it with kids. You so. just get yeah, you just have less time to get ready. <laughs> no, yeah, and less sleep, and less, less time to watch Netflix and, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually funny, Sarah, because when I was younger, I would see people at work and I'd go oh, do you want to come for a drink tonight or do you want to play sport on the weekend and they'd go no we can't we've got family and I'd yeah. in my mind go boring this so yeah. boring why are <laughs> yeah. they not doing it and now as I get older I'm like yeah. I get it I get oh, it I just so want to go home as well yeah, I just yeah. want to go home and relax I don't want to be yeah. out every night a hundred percent yeah it is real. like when someone invites us over for a kid's early dinner at 5 p.m which is a few drinks and then you're home by eight like that's almost my perfect night <laughs> so. mm, totally I want to switch gears and talk about Angel investing, and, yeah. and and this connects with Wade. I needed yeah. the VC Catalyst program. I think yours is unique because you, as you touched on with Bellabox, where you saw that fundraising journey from the other side of the table. Yeah. Did you start angel investing towards the end of the Bellabox journey? Also, the end of the Supernova journey, I decided that I really like this space, and I've got some really impressive 
men and women around me that when I was looking for my next step, they were like, number one, I think it was Kate Morris that told me that I should do the VC Catalyst course at Wade. And and Wendy Benici as well, there were a number of women that had done it before and said you would really like it. And I think it's one of the reasons why I exited Supernova was it was getting quite big and I really knew that I really loved the start. Like how do you set up the foundations? Because it's really hard if the foundations are wrong to sort of rewind and, and change that. And I think that's what led me into angel investing. So I had done a few before I did the Wade course and my investment thesis at the end showed me that I probably made a few investments that were wrong. <laughs> so I hadn't really thought about it. So Wade was excellent in shaping, in, in making me stop and think about exactly what I wanted, where I can add value and, yeah, the, the types of companies that I can invest in and what the criteria needs to be around those companies in order to invest. Can you share some of the content you went through in the program? Two weeks intensive, but you have one week on, one week off in the second week. So that's one that I did. Look, it was everything. So it was understanding all the investment terms, which still now I feel like some get thrown at me and I'm like, oh, God, lucky I've got that book, you know, and then really understanding, for me, the power of team. So what needs to be right in order to invest, really looking at the VC world, like what they t- what they invest. I think the hardest thing for me to accept is like, I think it was, you know, the failure rate is something like, I feel like I'm going to say 90, but I'm going to bring it down to 70 or 50 because I'm a positive person. But, yeah, yeah. those <laughs> things. So it was real world. They had so many amazing speakers. The groups were really impressive. So there was a lot of group work. So it was very practical. But, I, no, I absolutely loved it. Like a, a good friend of mine just did it recently and, and we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago he's like oh my god just it actually fires you up to invest more because you realize that there's so many gaps in investment especially in australia that you want to be part of changing that so i loved it mm. i i hosted a fireside for wade early oh, in the yes. year for their yeah. graduates for their graduates of their most recent cohort and they had uh Petrum from stanford mm. one of mm. their professors was there was that also a unique element of that international perspective for the program i love the international perspective no that it's super smart because obviously rachel newman's involved and she's had mm. a lot of great international experience so it wasn't just focused on australia and i think it was good to hear the perspective of of what's going on in different markets it makes me want to invest more overseas um, but yeah Petrum was super impressive really humble and super impressive and talk about how did you decide to use those learnings to actually start investing. So I haven't done the Wade program yet, but yeah. I've, I've, I'm close to it in different angles. And I think they're really valuable learnings. How did you apply your learnings from Wade into, into meeting founders or investments? So I think it was, you know, even just as simple as doing an investment memo. So why do I want to invest? What needs to be right? What does success look like? It's just preparation. I'm not much of a, like, I, I like to plan th- some things and other, I try and go with my gut a little bit. And I feel like the course was able to give me guidance on how I should be planning that. And then it was, it just gets easier in practice, as you would know, every time you meet with a founder and then you're able to ask, like, what's important to you? Because there's some, you know, there's categories that I'm like, I, I don't know anything about it, but but are all the team is correct, or the unit economics correct, is the exit potential correct? What are the competitive set doing? Is this person or is this company better or worse than that competitive set? All those sort of things I feel like they were able to give you guidance on and it doesn't it, it doesn't leave you. I feel like there's always new little tidbits that you remember as you're meeting with founders. So that for me was like, yeah, that guidance, like really it, it is an ecosystem, so how it all fits in and, and what you're with what you're interested in. 
you, you mentioned earlier that one of your learnings from Bellabox was the exit timeframe yeah. and, and understanding the priorities for investors and founders. Is that something you ask founders when you meet them now or did you learn that from the VC Catalyst program around the exit angle of it? Yeah, and even in Strand that I invested in and I am at the Strand office right now, you know, I love, I'm obsessed with the fact that we have a really strong exit plan because I think there's definitely the, like you do it out of passion and it's really interesting and, and that's great. Like, and there's lots of really successful companies that do that. But I feel like more and more I, I'm sitting on the side and this is probably just how my head works of like, no, what is our plan? How do we get there? And what, don't get greedy. Like, I feel like there's been a few times in different businesses I've been involved in that I perhaps, we perhaps should have exited earlier. And I think that, you know, knowing when to let go in life as in business is very important that you've got a grasp on that. Mm. And I also know, Sarah, that your investment portfolio is beyond angel investing. I realise this topic's not the best because it's about money and and, and, and all that. I, I get that. But just to give a sense of for listeners, how did you balance between – because I think a lot of people go into VC or angel investing because it's sexy and exciting and you got events. But <laughs> as you know, there's different forms of assets as well for financial – independence for yeah. folks to have what advice would you have for for listeners on as because you've done the founder journey you've been in the finance world in terms of financial management like are there any learnings from your career or from the weight program that you've applied i think diversification so i've done obviously a lot in beauty my family has a property company and we all as um, siblings invest in properties if we can and we'd like to, depending on what property is purchased, my brother manages that with his wife. So I like that. That's why I'm like, and I, go, I like the different business models. So I think it is still that financial management and understanding what we think we can get from this. And also that extends to not just Angel, as you said, because Angel is high risk, high reward, but also, you know, it, it, you know if you're putting, and, and this is where Wade was really great too, you can't have all of your money in that asset class because you're just, mm. you know, you could have a, 10 years where nothing happens. So, yeah, for me, that financial side is more about diversifying, but also I'm very profit-driven. So how do we make sure that we've got businesses that are profitable that I'm investing in or that that journey to profit is is quite quick? And is there a secret source to that in the beauty industry? Because I, I worked in, in CPG and retail for, for a number of years and it's it's hard. It's, it's low margin, it's supply chain intensive, it's operational. Yeah. And I know you're working now at Adore Beauty as well yeah. and you've seen it from different perspectives, different stages of companies. What have you learned about setting those financial foundations for a beauty company? Uh, it has to be set from the start. So you can't wish away or improve margin by hoping for bigger volumes. That should always be the cherry on top. So it needs to be a really strict unit economics sort of breakdown of like how do we make money? And it might be that for the first year you spend more on marketing, for example, but you need to know that you can get back to whatever percentage that marketing requirement is and that you're business model will be really set I feel like that's it for beauty you need it's it's it needs to be high margin and if it's not and this is what I think retailers are saying it's hard if you're dealing with you you're the third person down the line with margin so beauty it needs to be like you've got enough sort of in the tank in order to spend on marketing overheads logistics etc so and it's being really honest about that that's how beauty makes money Mm. I, I actually worked at I worked at Procter & Gamble for, yeah. for a period of time and it was interesting that where I learned that some of our products were core volume-based products, but mm-hmm. then some were premium. And that yeah. premiumization, from what I learned from speaking to folks in Singapore and other parts of Australia, does that really well, where there is a market for 
premium beauty, particularly for the female yeah. consumer. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the end, you always need a good product. So it's not about creating a product just for the margin. It's creating a really great product and then making sure that you've got a margin, you know, structure that then supports a profitable business model. But, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking about this with a friend yesterday that really now supermarket and pharmacy and even supermarket beauty looks so good now. It used to be really boring brands. So there's one, Monday Hair Care, which is doing really well, and it's like, wow. So it's sort of that, and that challenges my way of thinking is that there's a lot of great supermarket brands that are coming in going, I need this volume, but they're doing it really well. It's just not a space that I've played in. I've played in more that sort of mastige premium space. And I, I think I don't think you're missing out on much, Sarah. I think the supermarket <laughs> uh, with Pete Procter and Gamble, we worked at supermarkets a lot, and it was all okay. about commercials. There was it was all about numbers and supply no, chain all and the supermarket people promotions. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to go back to your career transitions for a second as well, how did you find the transition to go from being a founder to now being an advisor slash working at another company that you didn't found is that is that a mental shift it is a mental shift and I think it's almost comes with being a director as well that you need to be a bit more long-term in your focus and not so operational I feel like with Santa's going Coco and Eve I was so in the weeds all of the time and I like that but I love being able to step back and have a macro view on what's going on with these companies so it's only been a positive transition, but it's something that I need to like, I have to stop myself from getting too much in the weeds because <laughs> I still love that part, but, and really focus on, yeah, high level, what do we think we need to do with this business? How do we get to that next sort of step? And with that comes the need for a really strong team because it's hard to be a really small team and then be an advisor and invest in the business and, and not get too drawn into it. So I think mm. that part's really important. And talk about the split of time because I know you do advisory and then you do adore and you do investing yeah. as well. What does that look like on a week-to-week basis? So it's a mental load and I just try to balance it. So I went through a stage of writing down all the companies and then every week I made sure that I'd had some touch point with them and now it's sort of ebbs and flows a bit but I'm always, I'm more on a monthly basis I'm looking at making sure that I've got the right amount of time with everyone. So, and, and really, especially some of the brands like Mermaid Hair, I advise and I invested in and I love Tara and Steve. And I just say, like, you've got to tell me if I'm not doing enough. I'm a really honest, transparent person. So I, I'm relying on them as much as me to, to make sure that I'm getting as much done. And if they feel like they're not being looked after or I'm not offering enough help, then I just want an open conversation. That's what I say. So, yeah, hmm. it's a juggle, but this is... Kids work, etc. <laughs> like mm, yeah, and I, and I guess I couldn't, my I couldn't question, plan it. Yeah, yeah, and there's no right right answer to the question. It's something I, as you can tell, I think a lot about is yeah. time and I think energy management. I think we fall into a trap with calendar management, but yes, energy yeah. management, where particularly as an advisor, like I remember when I was new to the investing world, uh, a prominent VC said to me, "Is like balance what you say yes to because if you mm-hmm. say yes to too many advisory opportunities or investments and you don't have spare space in your calendar for that founder call yeah my founder calls you and says sarah i need help and you can put aside an hour yeah uh, i feel like i'm laughing because I, I still say yes to too many things but mm. what i'm trying to do is measure my time as i said like in terms of times per month as opposed to times per week i think times per week fills up really quickly whereas now i'm like feel like if I'm per month I need to do one day on X, it's much easier to find and that makes me more relaxed about my calendar. But it does mm. look like a bit of a mess when you look at my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think most of us are in that same boat. <laughs> yeah. 
And we, we talked about angel investing and venture capital. I don't know if you've had access to private equity through Adore or through your advisory roles. How is that? That's almost another topic that we can spend hours on is the difference between the Bellabox journey yeah. and then now with your advisory gigs and Adore where they've got a lot of private equity investment. Yeah, it's funny. So even with Strand, so Unilever Ventures is our lead investor and it just feels like private equity is... I'm going to really simplify it, and I'm, probably people will be embarrassed by my answer, but it's it's bigger numbers, so more due diligence, more corporate governments, you know, like you just can't wing it as much as you could when we were, for example, with Bella Box and it was more high net worth individuals. So, yeah, I just feel like the stakes get higher with private equity uh, and, and that sort of, I always call it the red phone, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to answer that call. That, though, that becomes more of... I don't want to say a challenge, I suppose, like it's something that, you know, and the expectations are much higher. So I think it's almost like it feels like just a different stage in life or in the investment journey is private equity. Yeah, and with a lot more pressure, but also your company should be at a point where you can handle that pressure. Hmm. I think I think particularly in this in, in macro environment where there's a lot more focus on some of the private equity fundamentals, yeah. even in venture capital, which which yeah. I think is, is healthy, where previously venture was funding ideas and, and yeah. stories whereas now it's more commercials and exactly like everyone's commercial that's what i mean it just feels like a different level of commercial the higher you get the bigger the company gets and the, the people that you attract yeah and there's some that are known <laughs> PE firms that it's like you need to answer them within 24 hours etc so it, it just becomes a different level of resource requirement or have, have you noticed a different level of I guess resource requirement, but also support provided. Like when you advise these founders, is there anything you tell them about the kind of support a VC provides versus the support a private equity investor provides? Yeah, and I think it's it feels like the VC is more not ad hoc, but more like you know, like a great friend. Whereas PE is like, okay, what's going on with this? This is the structure. You know, where's our monthly reforecast, etc. So again, it feels very tied to the money that you're raising. But, yeah, I feel like for me, a VC feels more a more relaxed environment and PE is kind of like you need to know your stuff and you need to be able to answer and it can't be like I'll get back to you in 24 hours. It's like you should know your business inside and out. And, again, because mm. the stakes are higher. So I think it makes sense. I don't think I, I don't have a problem with that. I just mm. you need to be ready with that level of investment. Mm. Mm. Totally. We are coming to the end of this conversation, so I want to move to quick rapid-fire finals. Oh, yes. <laughs> is, is there one non-work-related investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? <laughs> non-work meaning I can't say property or non-work meaning... You can. You can You say property. Yeah, non-work meant something outside of work, so it's not related to your direct career. Oh, such, right. Oh. It could be family. It could no, be no, no, a no. sport. It could be a hobby. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I love tennis. <laughs> Oh, and, me too. Me too. <laughs> and so shout out to Grant, my tennis coach. So I have a weekly tennis lesson and it could potentially be my favourite time of week. I adore my kids, so it's not that, but I absolutely, I love tennis. I love, love, love tennis. Died when Federer retired, but, yeah, I love that. And I get, so really frustrated. I get really frustrated if I don't win. <laughs> That's so interesting, Sarah. My my dream growing up was to play tennis. I I, uh -huh. I, ha I had all the support, but not the focus. Okay. 
I, I <laughs> you wish and I, I might not be able to play a game together. Then. I wish I wish I focused harder, but oh. I but I turned that turned that into like a. I worked at the Australian Open for a number of years, and then I've travelled <gasps> to Europe to watch tennis, and yeah, just a tennis fanatic where I can just yeah. Wow. Well, the only tennis. slam I have been to is the French Open, so that has to be coming in the next couple. Oh, that's that's one of my goals in yeah, my yeah, lifetime yeah. is to tick off the four. Yeah. I've only done one so far. Is to tick off the four and get the yeah, particularly Wimbledon like. Yeah. Camp out, camp out, yes. and get yeah, those, that was so fun. Love get those tickets and the yeah, maybe, yeah. I haven't done Wimbledon on court yet. On like it yet. I've only done it on Henman's Hill or whatever it's called. Yeah, Murray's nice. Or, yeah. yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> Is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months? I don't know. I just learn. I love learning about other people's businesses. I think that's it. I think I really uh, was involved in a a deal recently where it was just a different group of people and I loved the way, loved their perspective on, on business. So, yeah, that would be my, my business learning. I would love to learn more about perhaps different industries and different business structures. Yeah, I'd recommend climate climate tech. That's a space that I think is okay. fascinating. It's a space I spend a lot of time in as an investor right. and it's got a lot of a lot of crossover actually, I'd say, from consumer businesses given okay. the commercial manufacturing okay, focus cool. often. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. And last one, is there one person or quote that inspires you today? It's you can paraphrase. Funny. I know. I'm trying to, I, I, like, there's an app called I Am and it gives you really positive comments for the day. I know. Nice. And I think it's, you know, that you're always improving. I love that. So I can't quote exactly who said that, but I really love the idea that, you know, today is like a moment and you can always keep improving from here. That's a great note to end on. Well, that brings us to our finish line. Sarah Hamilton, thank you, thank you for joining me. No worries. Thank you, Vidit. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Sarah Hamilton in this episode 147, brought to you in partnership with the Wade Institute. I loved how the dots connect back for Sarah right from her childhood and the entrepreneurial influence to becoming a founder herself with Bella Box, a successful one, I must add, and then her transitions to an advisor and an angel investor, plus the beauty industry's business model and learnings from scaling a business, moving countries, and building a family. So I hope you enjoyed this episode 147. As always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation. All my contact details are in the show notes, and I will catch you very soon.